Glory to Jesus Christ, Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish presents Light of the East, a program revealing how the Eastern Catholic Churches have nourished the Roman Catholic Churches and today's world in profound ways through their history, traditions, mysteries, and spirituality. Hello, I am Father Thomas J. Loya, pastor of Annunciation of the Mother of God Byzantine Catholic Church in Homer Glen, Illinois, and this is the story of the Eastern Churches, an inspiring story of faith courage, intrigue, mystery, spirituality, dissension, and reconciliation. But most of all, this is an expression of a great experience of faith through our unique divine liturgy. Join with me now as we look toward the Light of the East. Light of the East is also supported by Eastern Christian Publications, where you can find the prayers of the Catholic Byzantine Daily Office at ecpubs.com and by easternchristianmedia.com, a broadband network for you to learn more about the Eastern Catholic Churches. That's easternchristianmedia.com. Glory to Jesus Christ. Welcome to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loya, your host. It is hard for me to believe that already we're going to be into the very beginning of October. In fact, in two days, it'll be October 1st. But as always, these days are significant for us here at Light of the East because each day is an exciting day on the Byzantine liturgical calendar. And in particular, if you're on the Gregorian calendar, in other words, a new calendar as opposed to the so-called old calendar, the Julian calendar. But according to that calendar and the Byzantine liturgical calendar, October 1st is the Feast of the Protection of the Mother of God. And I think that's a feast day with its theme that is particularly poignant and relevant for us today, especially as you look at the world and all the tragedies, and especially our brothers and sisters in the Middle East, especially in areas like Egypt and Iraq and Syria. And we're going to be talking about that in a moment. But certainly we do need protection. And this feast day, the Protection of Mother God, is certainly a feast day of her protection. And as always, one of the first things we do each day, one of the first things I do when I get up in the morning is I very excitedly run to my copy of the Synaxarian, which of course is the book in the Eastern churches for the lives of the saints and some meditations on the saint of that day. And these meditations are really great. So today, so this week, in two days, we will have the protecting veil of the Most Holy Mother of God. The Synaxarian says this about this feast day, the church has always glorified the Most Holy Mother of God as the protectress and defender of the Christian people in treating by her intercession, God's loving kindness towards us sinners. The Mother of God, her aid, has been clearly shown times without number, both to individuals and to peoples, both in peace and in war, both in monastic deserts and in crowded cities. The event that the church commemorates and celebrates on October 1st proves this constant protection of the Christian people by the Mother of God. On October 1st and 9-11, interesting date, 9-11, in the time of the Emperor Leo the Wise, or the philosopher, there was an all-night vigil at the Blasionate Church of the Mother of God in Constantinople. The church was crowded. St. Andrew, the fool for Christ, was standing at the back of the church with his disciple Epiphanius. At four o'clock in the morning, the Most Holy Mother of God appeared above the people with a veil spread over her outstretched hands as those who protect them with this covering. She was clad in gold-encrusted purple and shone with an unspeakable radiance, surrounded by apostles, saints, martyrs, and virgins. Seeing this vision, St. Andrew gestured towards it and asked Epiphanius, Do you see how the queen, a lady of all, is praying for the whole world? Epiphanius replied, Yes, Father, I see it, and stand in dread. As a result, 
This commemoration was instituted to remind us both of this event and of the Mother of God's constant protection whenever we prayerfully seek that protection, that shelter in distress. Now, I want to point out an interesting detail for our purposes here at Light of the East in this story. As St. Andrew, the fool for Christ, was standing there at four o'clock in the morning back of the church, and he sees the Mother of God. He, as the story says, he gestures to his friend Epiphanius and says, do you see what I see, basically? And he said, yes. Now, the reason why this is interesting is because in the Eastern churches, things like miraculous, unexplainable events, like visions, are generally accepted as valid or credible to the degree in which they can be seen by others, by many. In other words, the Eastern churches, by nature, does not put a lot of emphasis in individual revelation. In other words, somebody has a vision, and they're telling it to other people, or describing it. The Eastern churches might say, well, maybe that's valid, maybe not. It's just not that significant. However, if it is viewed by more than one, especially by a number of people, then the Eastern churches tend to put more credibility in it. That does not mean that we don't believe that a private relation was not, in fact, from God. It's just, as always, a difference we have to understand. Remember, the differences are not about who's right or wrong, or who's better or worse, or more correct or incorrect. It's a matter of emphasis and perspective. So the East emphasizes that more public revelation of any kind of revelation. The Latin Rite Church does as well, but it will put a lot of credence in specific individual revelations. And you can see this in this event here, where the Mother of God appears in the sky, or she actually appeared in the sky and over the this church and spreading her protective veil over it. But others saw it too. A number of people saw it. So it's a it was a public kind of vision. So that's very characteristic of the Eastern churches. Whenever you have other kind of miracles like icons that weep, that is seen, of course, witnessed by many. Or you might have, not the stigmata as you might have in Western mystics, but in the Eastern churches, the saints would have what they call the light of Tabor. In other words, their their whole countenance, their aura, as we might say today, would glow with the light of Tabor, and others would see that light. Now, there is one interesting thing I want to point out about icons that weep, and we have a number of them today. And in fact, we have them, interestingly enough, in churches where their countries of origin are having a great deal of heartache, great deal of tragedy, great deal of strife, such as in Syria and Egypt, the Middle East. In fact, I know of weeping icons here in America, one of which was in an Albanian Orthodox church, another one was in a Syrian church, another one in a Coptic church. And I remember in the past several decades, all three of those areas have seen tremendous war, tremendous inhumanity, civil wars, brother against brother, just terrible wars within themselves. So we don't know and can't say for sure how to exactly interpret an icon that weeps or any kind of miraculous imagery that is seen. We might have some indication. It's almost like we can arrive at it in hindsight. I certainly tend to because I look at these icons that have wept in the particular churches they wept in, and the events that we know now were not necessarily happening at the time that these icons were weeping. So in a sense, to me at least, they were somewhat prophetic, almost like warning us. The mother of God, mother crying for her children, begging them as if to say to them, come back to my son, your savior. Remember, she always, always points us to her son. She's all about Christ. And that's why in the icons, her arm is always gesturing towards Christ. In fact, this icon of the 
protection of Mother God is the only icon in which you see the Virgin Mary in a position where she's not directly gesturing to Christ. This is a very unique event, a very unique icon. Otherwise, she's always in some way seen with Christ, either directly, definitely right there in the image, or implied, such as at her, the Annunciation. But always, the Mother of God is about drawing us, gesturing, pointing us towards her Son. We certainly need her protection now more than ever, especially in these times of strife in areas such as the Middle East that are going through such terrible times. We're going through terrible times in other ways as well, and probably worse times are coming the way things look. But we, of course, remain hopeful. As John Paul II would always say, do not fear, be not afraid, and we continue to pray. Here are some of the prayers that we do say on October 1st during this Feast of the Protection Mother of God. This is from the Byzantine Liturgical Divine Office. In the company of the angelic powers, united with the prophets and apostles, the Mother of God enters the church today in splendor. She prays for all Christians and protects them with her mercy, that they may be delivered from all sorrow and distress. You have been called the Ark of Moses and the Rod of Aaron. For Christ the flower has blossomed forth from you, O tree of life. Entreat him in behalf of those who honor you, O queen, to deliver us from all evil, that we may celebrate your feast. And notice also there, once again, typical examples of the allegorical typology of the Eastern churches. When we pray and do so in reference to the Mother of God, we'll use references such as the Ark of Moses, the Rod of Aaron, the Flower, the Tree of Life, as you just heard. And these are all types of the archetype of the Mother of God. In other words, they're hints, foreshadowings, allegory, allegorical images in the Old Testament that basically are foreshadowing or symbolizing what would later become the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God. So the Old Testament is entirely about Christ and his Blessed Mother. That's right. But it's all done through allegory, through events, persons, things in nature, events. But it's all about Christ and the Mother of God. As I mentioned before, I was reading from the Synaxarian. It's the book that I always look at, usually about first thing in the morning, because I like to see who my little, I call my little buddies. Who's my buddy going to be that day? In other words, who's the saint of the day that I'm going to talk to and pray to and ask them to help me and intercede for others? It's really, it's kind of exciting. And there's another way to look at this, a very handy way, actually. It's a particular booklet that I've been talking about often on this program. It's called The Theosis Magazine. It's based upon, kind of designed after, modeled after, the little magazine called the Magnificat. have to admit, we Easterners copied the idea or got the idea, was influenced by the brilliance of, the, of our Western brethren <laughs> in their form of the Magnificat, a really handy little booklet usually found in the back of churches in their Latin rite. Well, we based our Theosis book on that. I'm a contributing author of that. And in that Theosis book, you do have the prayers each day and the mention of the saint of each day and a little bit about them as well. It's a little manageable book. And I talk about this book not because I'm a merchandiser, because I'm an evangelizer. And many of you always ask, and one of the most common questions asked of me is, where can we learn more about the Eastern churches? And generally, you want a very manageable, sort of one-stop shopping kind of source. Well, that's kind of impossible But there are some things that are very helpful, and one of these is theosis. You can find out about that by going to ecpubs.com, ecpubs.com. Again, the Theosis Magazine. We're going to talk more about protection and also our suffering brethren in the Middle East when we return. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Light of the East's mission is Christianity's reunion. And to tell the story of the Eastern lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support. In order to keep Light of the East on the air, you can make a donation now by going to byzantinecatholic.com. 
That's ByzantineCatholic.com. Click on the radio button and then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. When you reach God, there's always more. And now, a Sheptitsky Institute Minute with Father Peter Galadza. At a retreat for priests, Andrei Sheptitsky once said, For all creatures, even the most exalted and perfect, God is always an abyss of unapproachable light. The more one knows God, the more one is conscious of that infinite abyss of unapproachable light. That infinite abyss that God continues to be even for those who see him face to face. And in fact, for them, this is especially true for they who are on the way to the kingdom understand better than all other people on earth the degree to which God's being infinitely transcends everything. Holy ignorance is the most complete knowledge of the divine. To learn about degree programs in Eastern Christian Studies, visit sheptitskyinstitute.ca. That's S-H-E-P-T-Y-T-S-K-Y institute dot C-A. You're listening to Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Glory to Jesus Christ. Glory to Him forever. Hello, I am Father Thomas J. Loya with Katie Goulis for an Eastern Christian moment. The difference between what Pope John Paul II referred to as the two lungs of the church, East and West, is something like the difference between men and women. Men and women are both human, but they experience and express that same humanness in complementary ways through a fundamentally masculine perspective and a fundamentally feminine perspective. The Western lung of the church has a great genius for evangelizing, for moving out beyond itself to proclaim the gospel to the world. It is a strong sense of order, noble simplicity, reason, and a fundamentally vertical ecclesiology. The eastern lung of the church, like a beautiful queen, evangelizes by drawing people to herself through an overpowering beauty and mysticism. Church structure in the east is based upon a local ecclesiology. These differences are seen and expressed in the respect of liturgy, spirituality, art, architecture of both lungs of the church, east and west. To find out more about the eastern lung of the church, go to easternchristianmedia.com. Welcome back to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Lawyer, your host, as we are entering into the month of October, the first feast up in the liturgical calendar for us, of course, is the protection of the Mother of God, or the her protecting veil that she let down over top of the Church of Blachernay. And it was during a time of strife. There's a couple of interpretations. Some say it was a volcano, or an earthquake, rather. Others say that it was a pestilence, you know, a disease, or others say it was war. Whatever the source there was difficulties. The people prayed all night, and she appeared miraculously. And there's an icon in a feast day of that, which is kept alive largely in the Byzantine churches of Slavic origin, such as the Ruthenian, Ukrainian, Russian, Belarusian churches. But speaking of those who suffer, another opportunity for you is coming up this month. It's called Alive in Christ, the Witness of 20th Century Saints. And this is the Elnor Mulberg Eastern Churches Seminar. This is being held at Notre Dame University in Cleveland, Ohio. There's a Notre Dame in Cleveland, Ohio, which is where I'm from originally. It's also where the center of our eparchy is in Parham, Ohio, suburb of Cleveland. And every year, they have an Eastern Churches Seminar with a different theme each year. And this year, it's called Alive in Christ, the Witness of 20th Century Saints. In other words, these are those who died in the wars and the persecutions, especially under communism. 
who have been beatified and declared saints largely under John Paul II. Now, that's October 11th to the 12th. That's a Friday to Saturday at Notre Dame College in South Euclid, Ohio, which is a suburb of Cleveland, Ohio. To find out more about that, to register, go to this website, notredamecollege.edu. Notre Dame College. Of course, that's spelled N-O-T-R-E-D-A-M-E. Notre Dame. NotreDameCollege.edu. Again, Friday to Saturday, October 11th to 12th, the Eastern Church's Seminar, Live in Christ, the Witnesses of 20th Century Saints. You're going to hear from priests who are going to talk from their lived experience coming from churches who were under this persecution, especially under communism. So it should be very fascinating, very worthwhile. So if you're in the Cleveland area or if you want to troop on out there, make a little pilgrimage, I think it'd be very worthwhile. Alive in Christ, the Witness of the 20th Century Saints. And again, that website is NotreDameCollege.edu. Now, that's Notre Dame in Ohio, not the big Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana, but it's Notre Dame nonetheless. So again, two references for you, ecpubs.com for Theosis Magazine, about the saints of each day and the prayers, and also the Alive in Christ, the Witness of 20th Century Saints. And one more item, it's coming up, but I do want to send off in advance our congratulations to one of the eparchies or dioceses in my church, which is the eparchy of Passaic, New Jersey. And they're going to be celebrating their 50th anniversary, and that's going to be coming up in November. 50th anniversary, Sunday, November 10th, 2013. And the eparchy of Passaic, like all of our eparchies in Eastern churches, we call our diocese eparchies, they, they take in large territories. Although the eparchy of Passaic is centered in Passaic, New Jersey, it encompasses the entire eastern seaboard, all the way, all the way down all the eastern states along the east coast down to Florida, just as my own eparchy of Parma, centered in Cleveland, Ohio, or specifically Parma, takes in 12 states, the whole part of the Midwest, the heartland of America. Some eastern churches take in the entire United States into one eparchy. The whole United States is their entire one eparchy or diocese. And speaking of other eastern churches, we do hear in the news a lot about the country of Syria. And what's unfortunate about our news, or the way we receive the news, is that the information we get about countries such as in the Middle East, Syria, Iraq, Egypt, is usually the strife that's going on there. And we have this sense that it's basically an entirely Islamic nation with lots of strife and violence. But you have to remember, these are biblical nations, both Old Testament and New Testament. They're very significant. Their Christian presence was, was monumental, was extremely significant. And that Christian presence is little by little being wiped out or having to go underground, but it's still there. And in Syria, you do have a Christian presence. You have, for instance, the Syrian Orthodox churches and the Syrian Catholic church. Now, a little bit about the Syrian Orthodox church. And again, I'm going to go to this great, great reference, the Eastern Christian Churches, a brief survey by Father Ronald Roberson. Boy, he does wonderful work. He works for the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, and he puts out these updates, these reports and books on the Eastern churches, and boy, he is very, very thorough. So I really salute Father Ronald Roberson. does a wonderful service for the church East and West. He's a Latin Rite priest, but he knows a lot about the East. He does kind of like what this program seeks to do. It seeks to present both lungs of the church in a very positive light in terms of their gifts, but primarily, of course, the Eastern churches. So the Eastern Christian Church is a brief survey. And this is what Father Roberson says about the Syrian Orthodox Church. It does trace its origin back to the early Christian community in Antioch, which is mentioned in the Acts of the Apostles. Remember, that's where it says in the Acts of the Apostles, it was in Antioch that they were called Christians for the first time. And the Antiochian church became one of the great centers of Christianity in the early centuries, but the Council of Chalcedon in 451 provoked a split in the community. 
and the council's teachings were enforced by the Byzantine imperial authorities in the cities, but they were largely rejected in the countryside. Now, in the 6th century, the bishop of Edessa, Jacob Baradai, ordained many bishops and priests to carry on the faith of those who rejected Chalcedon in the face of imperial opposition. Now, remember, Chalcedon was a great council in the church. It's one of those Christological, it settled one of the great Christological heresies about the natures of Christ. Consequently, this church became known as the Jacobite Church, in other words, after Bishop Jacob, with its own liturgy called the West Syrian or Antiochene liturgy, and other traditions using the Syriac language spoken by the common people. Now, the conquest of this area by the Persians, later the Arabs, ended Byzantine persecution and created conditions favoring further development of the Syrian church. There was a great revival of Syrian Orthodox scholarship in the Middle Ages when the community possessed flourishing schools of theology, philosophy, history, and science. At the height, the church included 20 metropolitan sees and 103 dioceses extending as far to the east as Afghanistan. There is also evidence of communities of Syrian Orthodox faithful without bishops as distant as Turkestan and Sinkiang during this period. I want to stop here and mention something that as you hear these countries, some of them sound kind of obscure, some of them you hear in the news all the time, but always in a negative light in terms of their, their wars and terrorism and so on. But we have to remember that there are Christian communities, ancient ones, in all these areas, even in Iran. That's right. Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, all these areas, even Saudi Arabia has Christian communities. So I'll continue on now with Father Roberson's description of the Syrian Orthodox Church. The Mongol invasions under Tamerlane in the 14th century, during which most Syrian churches and monasteries were destroyed, marked the beginning of a long decline. Terrible losses were suffered again during and after World War I because of the persecutions and massacres in eastern Turkey. And this led to a widespread dispersion of the community. But even now, the Syrian Orthodox population is shifting. In the 50s and 60s, many emigrated from Iraq and Syria to Lebanon. Within Iraq, they have been moving from the northern city of Mosul to Baghdad. Now, there again, there's two other cities that you've heard about often in our war with Iraq, Mosul and Baghdad. But here, they were great Christian centers. The most serious erosion of the community has taken place in southeast Turkey, where only a few Syrian Orthodox remain. Early in this century, many Syrian Orthodox also immigrated to Western Europe and the Americas for economic and political reasons. Now, the Syrians have a strong monastic tradition, and there are a few monasteries in the Mardin province of Turkey and other parts of the Middle East. And there are now three monasteries in the diaspora, located in Netherlands, Germany, and Switzerland. So, a little bit about the Syrian Orthodox Church. Now, the Syrian Catholic Church. During the Crusades, there were many examples of warm relations between Catholic and Syrian Orthodox churches. Some Syrian bishops seemed favorable to union with Rome, but no real concrete results were achieved. There was also the decree of union between Syrian Orthodox and Rome at the Council of Florence. That was back in the 15th century. Then Jesuit and Capuchin missionaries began to work among the Syrian Orthodox faithful at Aleppo in 1626. Now, there's another town you hear about on the news in terms of the war today, but Aleppo, again, was an important town for Christianity. So many Syrians were received into communion with Rome. Then in 1662, when the Patriarchate had fallen vacant, the Catholic party was able to elect one of its own. This provoked a split in the community, and in 1677, two opposed patriarchs were elected, an uncle and nephew, representing the two parties. But when the Catholic patriarch died in 1702, this brief line of Syrian Catholic patriarchs died out with him. In 1782, the Syrian Orthodox Holy Synod elected Metropolitan Michael Yarweh of Aleppo as patriarch. Later, he was enthroned, he declared himself Catholic, took refuge in Lebanon, it built the still extant Monastery of Our Lady at Sharfei. After Yahweh, there has been an unbroken succession of Syrian Catholic patriarchs. 
So again, just a little bit about the Syrian Catholic Church and the Syrian Orthodox Churches, but the point here is there are ancient Christian communities in Syria and all these war-torn areas of the Middle East. Many of them, of course, are of interest to us here in Light of the East because they are Eastern churches, Eastern Catholic or Eastern Orthodox churches. And certainly, as we approach the feast of the protection of the Most Holy Mother of God, we pray in an especially fervent way to her to protect these, our brothers and sisters in the Middle East, who are suffering so greatly. Please pray for them, and thank you for listening. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Light of the East's mission is Christianity's reunion. And to tell the story of the Eastern Lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support. In order to keep Light of the East on the air, you can make a donation now by going to ByzantineCatholic.com. That's ByzantineCatholic.com. Click on the radio button and then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. Would you like to hear this Light of the East program again? Welcome to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loya. Or hear Father Loya's companion program, A Body of Truth. Just visit the radio page at byzantinecatholic.com. That's byzantinecatholic.com. Or hear it again. Hear it again. Hear it again. Hear it again. For the first time. Light of the East is produced by ADC Media. Thank you for listening. Next week, we will return to the Light of the East. To find out more about Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish, visit our website, byzantinecatholic.com, where you will also find an archive of all of our programs. In order to continue this program with its mission of Christianity's reunion, we need your support with a donation. Any amount would be a blessing. Please make out a check to Light of the East Radio and send it to Light of the East 14610. Will Cook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. That's Light of the East, 14610, Will Cook Road, spelled W-I-L-L-C-O-O-K, Road, Homer Glen, Illinois. From the Light of the East, a new dawn of unity is in sight. God bless you, go with God, and may God bless you and grant you many happy years. <laughs>